I mean, Orlando is a very heavily internationally friendly city. A lot of real estate is bought here in, in, in the Central Florida area. Hey, it's JP. Hi, it's Excel. And you're listening to Terry Shower on the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. I'm here with David Pupo, who I believe is in Florida. If he's not in Florida, I'm going to let me tell us all exactly where he is. Um, he founded Florida Homebuyers, and he's now working on something called the Triple Offer Program, which he's going to tell us about in the interview. By way of getting started, tell us a little bit about the journey that you had through life that led you to be sitting with me here today talking about real estate. Yeah, it's a fun one, right? Everybody kind of stumbles into it. Uh, I actually had a lot of family in South Florida where I originally grew up. My mom owned a title company. My aunt was a really good real estate agent. And we had family members that were like mortgage loan officers and stuff like that. So I always I always grew up around it, but none of those things really interested me. Uh, went to college up here in Orlando, uh, stayed here in Orlando and started streaming on bigger pockets and went through those podcasts all the time. And then I started realizing the investment world was something I was really interested in. Uh, my background over at the college was marketing and finance. So it was, I always like messing around with the investment world and the investment strategy, right? So from there, I, I found real estate investing. At that time, I was with a corporate job doing recruiting for engineers. So a lot of big defensive contractors here in Orlando that look for people that are very smart, a lot smarter than me. I did not like the job really that much. It was really cool to hear what they did, but it just, it, it got to a burnout, right? So after listening to a couple of the podcasts, like I mentioned with Bigger Pockets, starting to go to the local communities and associations here in Orlando, I spoke with my girlfriend, but she is now my wife. And I was, hey, I'm going to save up a couple of months and let me see how this goes. And so I started in with a brokerage and just started continuing. So when you said you started with a brokerage, what do you mean exactly? So the real estate brokerage focused on that time, REOs and short sales. So that was still a pretty big thing here in Florida. So we were working with some of the bigger hedge funds that were buying properties for investment still. So I, that's where I got my my foot in the door. Okay, so like walk me through that because it like you're you're throwing mm -hmm. these words at me, and maybe it's because the vocabulary that we use in Canada is different. But like, what does that look sure. like? Sure. So Florida had a lot of foreclosures happen when 2008 hit, and it took years and years and years for those banks to get all these properties off of their quote unquote portfolio. So some of the bigger hedge funds like BlackRock, which was like the number one buyer in, in Orlando at that time, saw that they were selling these properties at like 30 cents on the dollar, 40 cents on the dollar continuously. So they came in here and they worked with the brokers that I joined and they said, hey, if it's at about this criteria, we're buying it. And so they were just buying hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of properties and so that was my first introduction into the real estate world, uh, investment. Okay. So you started as a broker, a real estate broker. Yeah. Yeah. Here it's just an agent and then you do an additional license for a broker, but yes. Okay. 
And then how do you go from that to being an investor? You start saving, you start learning, and you start taking action. I guess that's really the easiest way to put it. It started making me a little bit more interested. I was coming across these properties that are really good deals. And I started realizing I was selling them a lot. And I still do sell a whole bunch of them. But you know what we started seeing is that BlackRock bought these properties at like $50,000. And then as of last year, some of them were $250,000, $300,000. So you tell me how, how, how we're trying to our properties take some of them in for ourselves that's the financial freedom you know that's that's what we all want we want to be able to build up that equity uh, and if you're smart enough to be able to get the cash flow going on a monthly basis too so tell me about your first deal my first deal <laughs> so so it's here in Orlando and right it, it's still a short sale uh, property so it wasn't in that great of shape uh, at a time, we did these things called bandit signs. And a bandit sign is just a big old square with some stakes that you put in. And we got it under contract. And what I was doing was trying to find the local investor in that area. It was a community that had a lot of foreclosures and a lot of short sales. And so that property needed a, a lot of work. But once again, they're selling 30 to 40 cents on the dollar still at that time. And there was people just gobbling up this in their and so I put that that bandit sign that just said a three two block house that only needed like like I said like it needed about thirty to forty thousand dollars worth of work at that time, and I was able to sell it. It was like the easiest transaction, the first one, and I don't think I've had an easy transaction like that since then. The guy <laughs> walked in, said, "Hey, okay, I'll put the earnest money deposit down," and he bought it within two weeks. Okay. Since then, it has not been that easy. Okay. So I just want to make sure I understand this. So like you kind of like mm-hmm. you wholesaled that you didn't end up owning it. Mm-hmm. I did. Yeah. So that was my, so that was me starting to build up the, the, the amount of money I was trying to make. Right. As I was saying, we were selling a whole bunch of these properties and that was my first, uh, I didn't start getting properties on my own until like two or three years into, into the, the wholesaling career. Okay, that's so interesting. And so tell me about the first deal that was actually your own acquisition for you. Yeah, for me, it was a duplex over in an area just north of Orlando called Sanford. And it was actually through just the network that I had established with the local just real estate community. One of the the brokers in that area was looking to sell their duplex. Uh, they knew I was looking for properties in that area. Uh, and it was that one was actually pretty simple too. Uh, I brought in a partner to be able to buy it, and that was my first duplex I ever owned, and we still own it right now. And heck, we even bought the land next to it from that same broker, and that land is four x in, in in value since we bought it. So it's been pretty right. awesome. Same tenants in both upstairs and downstairs too. It's been pretty easy. We did have the hurricanes, as you remember, uh, back in November and October. And we did have a pretty big tree near it. So I was very concerned what was going to happen with that. But thankfully, nothing nothing too crazy happened with that. Okay. So, I mean, I think that brings us to the next question I want to ask you. So, like, we're up here in snowy Montreal. I could mm-hmm. turn the camera around and show you what it looks like today. I went for a run earlier. I was wearing two pairs of pants, a sweater, a coat, and, like, I felt like Rocky, you know? like Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And hoping not to fall on the ice. So, like, it's a dream for a lot of, um, you know, us 
Northern folk to own a secondary property or, or to get into investing in Florida. Um, what kind of advice would you have? I know like a lot of us worry, like you said about the hurricane or like troubles with insurance, like what kind of recommendations would you have for people who want to get into the Florida market? Yeah. First, I would suggest where you want to buy is going to be pretty critical, right? The hurricanes uh, have certainly, and you brought up a perfect example with the insurance. It's a really along the coastlines that have gotten affected the most. Where Hurricane Ian back in October hit was Southwest Florida. So you have these areas called Fort Myers and Naples uh, and like a couple of the smaller cities around her that got really hit hard because right off the Gulf, it hit them and it went right through uh, Florida that way. And then there was another one that came, but it came through the other side of Florida and hit the hit the coastlines closer to, it was like Volusia, Volusia County, which is where Daytona Beach is. So the coastlines are usually, you know, where everybody wants to be. But yes, they are the most vulnerable to the hurricanes for like that two to three month time frame. Uh, I live here in Orlando, so we're pretty landlocked, right? We're, we're kind of smack dab in the middle. So we don't really get the impact for it that much. So I'd, I'd say, I, I guess, understand where you want to look. Uh, and then start making great connections out there. I use anytime I go into a new market, uh, if anybody wants to use this app, it's called Thumbtack. And Thumbtack is a really great app. It's kind of like an Angie's list or an Angie it's called now. And you can just find local professionals in almost every different category, contractors, uh, property managers, agents, brokers. So you can be able to start interviewing people really quickly to work with. Enjoying the episode so far? Have you really been listening to the episode or has your monkey mind been taking you off in one direction or another? Our mental habits can be our biggest assets or our biggest liabilities as we pursue certain goals. For me, the biggest performance gains have always come from training my mind. In my book, Mindful Landlord, I talk about how you can train your mind and how you can apply some of these strategies to your journey in the real estate field. The book is available on Amazon and also on its website, mindfullandlord.com. Now I'll stop evangelizing for the power of mental training and let you get back to the show. Wow, that's great. We do not have something like that up here. And mm -hmm. I think we should. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, any other sort of like caveats or things that someone from out of state or out of the country should be aware of? I don't think that there's too many. I mean, with Florida, it's a it's a no income state. Uh, so it's it's I don't think you have to really worry about that. Of course, uh, we do something through like a title insurance company. So making sure that a buyer is legally able to buy something here uh, is, of course, something if you're an international buyer, something to, of course, get cleared up by. But uh, no, it's really not too difficult. I mean, Orlando is a very heavily internationally friendly city. A lot of real estate is bought here in, in, in the central Florida area. And of course, places like Miami is, you know, international destinations for because of that exact reason. And so if you had to pick a market in Florida, you would pick your local market, which is Orlando, or you, you there's another market that you like as well? Yeah. Uh, in, in all transparency, my favorite area in Florida is actually called St. Pete. Uh, St. Pete and Clearwater, which is just east of Tampa. I love that area. Uh, that's that's where you get a little bit of the beach vibes. Uh, the community here in Orlando is great, uh, especially around the downtown area. Of course, as you get closer to the the big uh, ears over there in Disney, 
it's very touristy. Uh, but, you know, many of the locals stay around the downtown area. But the community is really great over there in St. Pete. It's a very big Airbnb destination, too. So a lot of people like to go there, especially snowbirds uh, for those times. So that's a really big destination for a lot of people. Okay. Good to know. Um, so let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit. In the introduction, you mentioned your triple offer program. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. What is that? Right. As we've all seen a shift kind of happen with this market, right? At one point, sellers could uh, had all the gold, right? They could make the rules because they had all the gold. Now, with how interest rates have been going up, the buyers are having a lot more advantage uh, than they had prior in the prior to this two-year craziness with COVID. Uh, so we've been able to come up with something that is just overall just very solutions-based. It's not me only coming up with one offer. And if that one offer isn't accepted, then, okay, sorry, I guess we gave it our best shot. We come up with a custom approach. Uh, so we have one offer that's usually cash. It's, it's used as our anchor offer. And then we come in with something a little bit higher uh, that could be like a, a seller financing, hopefully with uh, maybe some interest for the seller. And then our third one, and of course, it, it depends on what the situation is with the, the seller and their equity in the property. But that's where we try really hitting it hard and going with a principal only offer. But we offer even higher sometimes than what the asking price can be, depending on the cash flow potential. Wow. And uh, you were able to get some of those closed? Yeah. Yeah. Those, those are very fun ones. Uh, when they happen, it is, it is the trifecta. You know, you're being able to do principal only payments. You get a depreciable asset that's going up simultaneously obviously in value. Uh, while while prices might be dropping, the rent market is still very, very heavy here in Florida. So that's not going away anytime soon. So you'd be able to just get into a situation where you're paying, paying down a whole bunch of equity. You're getting into a something that can cash flow very well. And then, of course, come tax season, you get to write off a bunch of it. Mm-hmm. And so like, just walk me through that because like, I've actually never heard of uh, you know, a principal only seller finance, really. So, yeah, what does that look like? What's the what kind of term is there on that? What's the amort period like? How 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 do you structure that? Because it sounds yeah. too good to be true. I'll be honest. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's well. I'll tell you what. It it comes down to the person's creativity. Uh, where I've sound, I found the the best success with it is other investors. Other investors understand cash flow. Sometimes your person down the street that owns a property. Uh, maybe they've owned it for like 30 years. They don't have a mortgage on it anymore. They don't usually care too much about cash flow, but investors say for like a duplex or a fourplex or anything higher, they like cash flow. So it makes it a little bit easier to have that conversation with people that understand cash flow. So when they are free and clear properties, you get to kind of dictate the terms and see if they're very reciprocative of it. I like to be able to establish. What do you want to get paid on a monthly basis? And from there, I start breaking out the other terms, right? As you just mentioned, like the, the, the amateurization schedule, right? Amateurization schedule, I years, but we might be able to just do a five-year balloon where we pay it all in that five years or in 10 years. I mean, you, you get it, right? We're, we're paying down only principal. So... 
we're in an area where we can always refinance it if we want. And it's in a good spot. Yeah. Wow. Super interesting. So uh, is there anything else you want to say about that before I move us to like a completely different area of conversation? Yeah, I, I mean, really what it's really about is just simply finding out what works for the seller. You know, it's not something it's, it's it, I would love to be able to say it's a very easy standard approach, but I want to find out from the seller what, what makes the most sense for them, because then I don't have to be that hardcore closer. I can just come in and based off of, I have three criteria that we use. Uh, what's like the, their highest priority? One is the price, of course. That's a very easy one to understand. Uh, the timeline that they want to close in and overall convenience factor. You know, if the property's in rough shape, if they're out of state, they don't want to deal with, uh, you know, anything that's uh, with appraisals or any kind of contingencies. So we like to just see what their priorities are. And based off of that, we, we create a custom approach. And so you're dealing with mostly landlords, like landlords. This is not someone's principal residence that you're buying. Not landlords, but we do do the residents as well. But it's always an easier conversation with landlords. All right. Um, so I'm going to uh, switch tax to, um, I guess, the like other two questions that I always ask on the show. So, sure. um, you know, getting into real estate, people like when you talk to people, they like to tell you about what's happening for them now, uh, how things have worked out, how they've made money, how they've made a success of things. But very often mm -hmm. we don't talk about the lifestyle hits that we took to get here and the sacrifices that we had oh, yeah. to put in in order to do what we did. So. I'm going to turn it over to you and ask you, like, what are some yeah. of those, uh, you know, lifestyle hits and sacrifices you had to make to get where you are? And what words of encouragement might you have for someone else who's like looking at the mountain and being like, I don't know how I'm going to get there? Absolutely. This is actually one of my favorite topics uh, because I think social media has just shown such an accelerated gratification, right? You see somebody being able to sell a property. They post a nice little check or, hey, I sold this property in three days. And there's a lot of gratification from that. But yeah, there's there's the other side of that coin, 100%, where there's setback, where there's failures. Uh, one of the big things I went through last year was my business partner decided that he didn't want to be in this anymore. And I didn't realize this, but he ran up a lot of debt on our company, Right. So that was to the tune of $83,000. So that caused a lot of sleepless nights. That caused me to, I had to fire some people because then it was a very uneasy environment. People didn't know what was going on and it was just a very awkward situation, right? I had to rebuild an entire system and the most amount of attention and focus that I could ever put into something, it was a fight or flight situation. So seven days work, maybe three days of sleeping normal, right? And just grind until I was able to hire the right pieces again, systemize the process. It's tough. It, it is not going to be always easy. I mean, it, it, it is what it is. And anything else that went on maybe like earlier on in your, you know, building of your business? Like I know you kind of told me, took me back and, and walked me through the story, but you know, if you leave a corporate job, you know, I, I also have my broker's license. I know what it is to start out as a broker when you don't really know what you're doing right? <laughs> and you kind of have to fake it till you make it. Like there's a lot of like 
steps along the way where, mm-hmm. you know, there's different things you either have to give up or, or obstacles or like mental things you have to get over anything else from like maybe earlier on in your career. A hundred percent. I I find this to be very true. I heard somebody say this the other day when it came to real estate. Real estate isn't actually that difficult. The problem is, is choosing what to focus on long enough to get the success. I had shiny object syndrome. I'm somebody who's your, your typical visionary, a little bit of ADHD, starting to learn different things, different tactics, and just was diverting all my attention to a lot of different things. Uh, and then, of course, in the beginning, that is the last thing you need is you need to have 100% focus and concentration on what you're trying to build, right? Uh, one of my great mentors puts it so well. And, it, and I'll tell you what, if your audience doesn't grab something from this, they can build me. Think about a magnifying glass on a sunny day. And you want that magnifying glass to be able to burn something up. You don't move it. You find the light. And put that magnifying glass and you focus it on whatever that object is, right? Going to be able to get enough energy concentrated on it to be able to do that. But if you keep on moving that magnifying glass back and forth, you're not going to be able to get enough heat to be able to do anything. And I think that's the same exact way that uh, anybody who is very short term uh, needs to be just very focused on what they want to be able to do, which is tough. It's tough to decide. Like I said, there's just as many avenues to be successful in as maybe any other industry. Yeah, I think I think that's great advice. I have, a, as you were talking, I have like one or two, you know, colleagues who I'm like, oh, I need to send them this video because they also have a little bit of shiny object syndrome. <laughs> it's true. Um, yeah, yeah, but I, yeah. I think I think you're absolutely right, and I think you're also right in that this industry, like, I don't want to say that there's as many business models as there are investors. But there are a lot of business models. And one of the difficult things when you start is mm-hmm, obviously mm-hmm. getting growing, but then which business model you end up pursuing. And then the fact to make sure that it actually right. really fits your personality, right? Because, you know, somebody who like, let's say I, you know, I'm, I'm a very kind of conservative, stable investor. I own a lot of multifamily, like low income properties, and I manage the hell out of them. But my business model is not yeah. the right business model for someone who likes to flip or someone who wants to be more fast paced and meet a lot of different people. Like for me, my work environment is like usually it's the same 20 people, like the same contractors, same property managers. And like, I'm not generating a hundred new contacts like every month. Whereas like somebody who's in wholesaling, mm-hmm. like the pace of their business is much quicker. So you kind of also have to like land in a niche that makes sense for your personality and, and, and how you want to develop your business. So I think you're absolutely right. Absolutely. And in the beginning, I'll tell you some of those different adventures, right? One of the areas around here, once again, in Orlando is is more of a luxury market. It's called Winter Park. It's like I would call, I guess, the old money area of of Orlando. And I had it in my mind. I was starting to get some success with wholesaling. And I was doing really well with working with a lot of the builders that were based in Winter Park. And here's a shiny object, right? At the same time, when I say shiny object, I also learned something I didn't want to do. It took a little bit of time, maybe a year, but I established contacts. But what I was doing is I was finding properties that we would want to demo or any kind of infill lots in in a nice community to build a nice brand new multi-million dollar house. And I mean, I thought that would be the epitome of making it to be able to be the listing agent for a lot of properties that are 
2.3, million, $2.5 million, right? So I start working those, uh, those open houses, uh, every single weekend. And I started realizing very quickly, it was not the people I liked. It was not my, it wasn't my tribe. I had people coming in there complaining about some of the smallest things. I, to this day, I still will get my blood boiled a little bit that you could be in this brand new $2 million house that's on a half acre, beautiful, nice new pool. And then like, they don't like the color of these $40,000 hardwood floors, uh, like those kind of things. Right. And like, I just started realizing that wasn't how I liked interacting with people. And so after about a year, year and a half, I started realizing, you know what, I'll leave that for the people that like it. It's not for me. I think I like, I love that you told that story. And like, I, you know, took me back to when I was starting out as a broker and it's the same, it like it was the same experience though. Like I kind of knew that the luxury market was not for me because I were like, I can't, I did exactly that. I can't deal mm-hmm. with it. I can't deal with like the, you know, complaints and the, you know, existential angst that people can have over like the color of the kitchen. And you're like, well, you do realize that's like a $4,000 problem. Like just paint the bloody kitchen and it's going to go away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, no, no, I think, and I think that, that, you know, in terms of like finding your footing and finding like, who are the kind of people you want to be having conversations with? And like, you know, for me, it's that specific investment space of people who want to talk numbers and who aren't going to, uh, like we have an expression in French, are not going to trip over the flowers in the carpet, you know? <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Exactly. I know exactly what you mean. Yep. <laughs> um, and uh, so I'm going to ask you the last question um, that I usually do on the podcast, which mm-hmm. is, what do you think that we should be talking about in our industry that we're not talking about? You know, there's a lot of conversations that happen all the time. What subjects should we be discussing? What kind of advice should we be giving? What should be on our radar that's not on our radar? One of my biggest soapboxes is making sure that you are doing the right thing for the sellers. In my world of real estate investing, and and if you're in the low income areas, it's probably a very similar situation. We are given a lot of power over uh, over buying buying a property that if you aren't having that seller's best interest in mind, I will call it predatory because you are only thinking about the check that you want to cash. That's why I, I really took time with making sure the triple offer approach, they pick. They pick what they want. It's not me just being a hardcore closer and just putting pressure on them to accept an offer. I like being able to show I am solutions oriented. I've heard you. I understand you. Here are options for you. And I think if everybody could get off of this, this immediate gratification of showing I, I posted like making $20,000 on, on a property or $100,000 or whatever the amount may be. I want you to be able to tell me, how did you help that person out of a bad situation, right? Because I don't need to be as, as, as an aggressive closer as you are, and I will get more results because I'm actually helping the people, right? That's the whole point. That's, that's the whole world of an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur identifies a need in this world, and they want to be the, 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 the solution for it. And we sometimes get a little too wrapped up uh, Especially in, in like anything with mine, I'm very, as you mentioned, very high activity. When you're doing 50, 60 deals a year, you can get very transaction-based oriented. But I always tell all, all 
my lead manager, closer, have just great conversations with people and find out how we can help. If you do that, we can we can be able to solve a lot of different issues. And you, you don't have to get this reputation of being somebody who's predatory if you're just solving issues. Yeah, I think uh, that's really, really great advice. And, um, you know, I think it's Tony Robbins who said, you know, think about adding value. And like everything that you do as a business mm-hmm. owner, like the more people you can serve and the more value you can, you can add is going to be equivalent to your ROI at the end of it. And, um, you know, so yep. you're you know, serving whoever your investors are serving buyers, but also serving maybe the weaker party in that transaction, be it, you know, be it the seller, be it the buyer, be it the tenants and the more people you can sort of serve and treat fairly, that's going to end up paying off in the long term If you're not caught up in, in the short termism, you know? Yeah. And Terry, this works really well for you and your audience, right? Understand this. If you're in the property management world or you have a rental portfolio, it is not the property that pays the bills. It is the people that pay the bills. So make sure you treat the people well, and then that property is going to get paid off very easily. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, look, David, I want to thank you for taking this time to chat with me. Um, what's the best way people can connect with you if they want to learn more about what you do? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for being able to have me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, yeah. I mean, as you can imagine, my last name and first name combination isn't one that is like John Smith, right? So David Pupo, you can find me on a whole bunch of different social media platforms, your Facebook, your Instagram, TikTok, uh, the YouTube videos are just starting to come out a little bit more. Uh, and then overall, uh, we're launching our website called tripleoffer.com. So that should be finalized in the next week or two. So you can be able to find additional information about the program from there. But I love uh, Terry, I took a little bit of time extra and I was looking through a lot of your material. And I love the mindfulness. That is something very critical. It is very critical for this uh, this high end society where I'm saying that we're very activity oriented, we're very futures oriented. To be mindful of a lot of things uh, and being able to be in harmony because sometimes it's not easy. It is not easy. So it's something I had to learn going through that adversity last year uh, to be able to find peace and that kind of mindfulness is not easy. So I love that that is part of. Your uh, that your soapbox or what you like to stand for is a really great sign. Absolutely, another topic for another conversation. Thank you so much for joining me, David. Absolutely, thanks, Terry. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating, leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Terry at terryshower.com. Her book, Mindful Landlord, is available on Amazon. You can also follow her on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. JP is the president of the Real Estate Investors Club. You can learn more about the club's networking and educational activities on Facebook by searching for Real Estate Investors Club. Look to the show notes to find information on our guests and links to material mentioned in the episode.